a revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Mosmo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I am your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we have a really special conversation. Often I have it in one category. It might be pregnancy or delivery or breastfeeding or parenthood. But today I have an episode that really has something for everyone from expectant parents to new parents, yoga teachers, and yoga practitioners. I have Mado Hesslink. She is a renowned yoga teacher and business strategist who help yoga teachers integrate their heart-centered mission with practical business and teaching strategies so they can both make an impact and a living. And she's also the host of an amazing podcast, The Yoga Teacher resource. I listen to it every week when I'm cleaning my house. I always have Mado's voice in my head. And Mado shares her journey from having her first child in her early 20s to having her second child in her late 30s. And she really beautifully talks about her very powerful births. And you know me, I love a good birth story. And Mado just, it's almost like you're reliving it in a really positive, empowered, powerful way. She also talks about her yoga philosophy, her take on yoga, how she teaches. So again, I think this is going to have a little something for everything. And it was really an absolute delightful conversation. So I think you're going to enjoy that. Before we get to that, I wanted to say a thank you to those that leave a rating and review on our podcast. It helps people find the podcast. So one that just came up was from Jojo Becks. She writes, must listen. So informative. Deb and her guests get at questions I didn't even know to ask, from strategies for maintaining fitness during pregnancy to tips for delivery. I always know I'll walk away with something new. So thank you, Jojo Bex, for that. I also want to thank all of those people that pop into class that hear about class from the podcast. We've got our pre and postnatal classes seven days a week online. Check that out in all our workshops. If you do pop into class from hearing about the podcast, just let me know because I want to give you a special shout out and hello. We also have teacher training underway. Wow. It has been such an amazing opportunity to get to do this online and get to reach people that I know would not have been able to come to New York and take the training. We right now have the current group. We have people from all over, not just the US, the US, but all over the world. We actually have someone right now from Switzerland, which I believe is six hours ahead. So there was one point I looked up at the clock and I thought, oh my gosh, it's two in the morning over there. I know it's pretty amazing. So thank you, Emma 
Velma for your commitment <laughs> for the teacher training. Also, if you are a yoga teacher and you're not quite comfortable with the pregnant student popping into your class, either in person or online, I have a free webinar that I think you would enjoy. It's called Three Big Mistakes Yoga Teachers Make with Pregnant Students and How to Avoid Them with Grace and Confidence. So if you have that panic moment, I've got you covered. I've got some great tips to help you support the pregnant student in your class. Check that out on my website at prenatalyogacenter.com. All right, before we get to my conversation with the dough, we're going to take a quick break and we'll talk soon. A revolutionary baby monitor is born. I want to introduce you to a brand new baby monitor, Massimo Stork. Massimo Stork Baby Monitor tracks health indicators so you can get to know your baby better. Track your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and skin temperature with the high-resolution video and clear two-way audio from the Stork app. While Massimo Stork Baby Monitor is new, Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET to be exact, has been trusted in hospitals for over 25 years. In fact, 9 out of 10 top U.S. hospitals, as ranked in the 2022-2023 U.S. News & World Report, uses Massimo SET as their primary pulse oximetry technology. Now, this technology is available for families at home, empowering confident parenting. Go to Massimo Stork to learn more. Please remember, Massimo Stork is not meant to be used as a medical device. Hi, Amadeo. How are you today? I'm really good. Just got back from a walk, which was amazing. Oh, that's nice. My daughter and I took a little walk around the neighborhood earlier, so it's nice to get out in these in these times. So as I was saying before we started taping is, you know, I've been doing yoga for years, but I realized I don't talk about it as much as I used to, especially to to a mother, <laughs> even though all my students are that, I realized a lot of my teachers that I grew up with either had kids a long time ago or didn't have kids and really focused on their career. So I think it's going to be really exciting to talk to an established yoga teacher and talk about how motherhood fit into that. So thanks for coming on my podcast. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. So I guess let's jump into a little about you and how you got into the world of yoga. I was introduced to yoga when I was in college. I was a theater major, which is so funny nowadays because I completely burnt myself out on theater <laughs> by being a theater major. And I like did none of it after college, but I loved it before college. I majored in theater in college and my theater professors introduced me to yoga. They also introduced me to martial arts mm -hmm. and I got involved in a pretty intense and awesome in many ways dojo during college. And at the time, yoga felt like this really soothing complement to the martial arts, which was, it was very intense. It was very physical and it was very, there was a lot of endurance involved. So when I graduated from college, I did both of these things at the same time. But when I got pregnant, it became very clear to me, and really, especially after my older daughter was born, that I couldn't do both, that I just did not have the bandwidth in my life to do both. And because of how nurturing the yoga felt in comparison to the martial arts, that was like a clear, clear winner for me of what I needed at that time. And then did you, what made you decide to become a teacher? Well, I was actually in teacher training when I got pregnant. Okay. So I just loved yoga 
and I loved the way it made me feel. And I wanted to help other people feel that way. So what is your approach to teaching? Cause I know everyone, a lot of people come from one lineage or, or is it kind of a mixture? Like personally, I, I've noticed my background. It's a combo of like, I started with Shiba Ray when, you know, before she was kind of who she is like 20 years ago. And then I studied with Cindy Lee and then Iyengar. So my approach is kind of this weird parade of those three. What, what's your approach? Well, it's definitely evolved a lot over the years. I would say that I started with more of a vinyasa approach and I studied Anusara for many years. And right as that group was really exploding. I don't know how much you know about that. If you're in New York, you probably know a good bit, like I, some about it. I, I do, but can you, can you share with our listeners? Because they, they don't, I definitely heard about what was happening and it was kind of this big explosion on the scene. Um, especially with some of the bigger people like, uh, Elena Brower being in New York, but yeah, do you mind, you don't have to give the whole thing, but just a little hint of yeah, the absolutely. implosion of it. So Anusara was really into community. That was a big part of their approach, and it was a big part of their appeal. So, for example, there was a very casual, lighthearted, and friendly approach to the classes where you were kind of encouraged to chit-chat before and after class and have events. And so part of that really got into the realm of being a little bit culty because there were all of these and honestly, there's probably lots of yoga styles that veer into that mm-hmm. because there's all of these words that are jargon that you only know if you're an insider and these ways of holding your body and this almost this somatic dominance that happens with a charismatic leader. So in 2012, which was right around the time that my own mother passed away, um, Shortly before she passed away, it came out that the founder of Anusara had all of these different unethical behaviors, some of them being more of a sexual nature, some of them more business ethics. And for me, the most problematic was kind of the power dynamics. So at that time, it was really intense for the people inside that community because we were so encouraged to develop connections inside the community. So it it felt like this big identity crisis. And, you know, losing my mother <laughs> that same year, it was, it was like everything was falling apart. So it was very similar to 2020 in a way, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for me, 2012 yeah. was. And so at that time, I was basically invited to question everything that I thought I knew about yoga. And so I ended up with a much more eclectic approach. I didn't feel drawn to having one main teacher after that. I felt a little betrayed. Not that even John Friend, the founder, he wasn't even really my teacher, right? I had other teachers, but the whole thing left this taste in my mouth. Like we all have blind spots. Every tradition has blind spots. And so I want to learn from as many different perspectives as I can and find my own way to my version of the truth. So I would say that that is my approach. I'm, I love anatomy and I studied a lot of anatomy after Anusara. Anusara is more alignment based, but anatomy is interesting because it actually doesn't lead to 
system, systematic alignment, it leads to individual alignment. So that's more my focus now and, but also creative freedom and the nervous system and individuality and allowing people to find their own way into yoga. Oh, I love that. Yes, I 100% agree. And I know that you love anatomy because I know that you and Livy are good friends and she was on my podcast recently because of you. Um, because I heard you guys having a psoas conversation. So I'm like, ooh, we need to go there. So thank you for all the anatomy you put out there and for what you do. And I love that you were talking about that the anatomy understanding really can lead to an individual practice. Within a pose, we can really start to look at what one feels themselves instead of being dogmatic about this is how it should be. And I, I, I do that a lot with my pregnant students. I invite them to feel and make decisions about what the pose feels like. I always often say, like, I make the suggestions, but they make the decisions. So I think I'm right there with you on that. So now when you teach, what do you, what is your focus? How do you, how do you approach your classes? Well, it just depends honestly on what is inspiring me in the moment. I love yoga philosophy and I always bring a flavor from yoga philosophy into my class, whether it's stated explicitly or not, it informs my approach for sure. And I always like to start with a check-in. I always like to start by inviting my students to notice the present moment and to set aside temporarily any stories that arise about the present moment, but instead really examine it with curiosity and then to go from there into a journey of exploration of movement and staying in the present moment as we move, noticing how our experience of the moment changes throughout the class, and then a check-in again at the end to reflect on the journey. Mm, I really like that. That has a lot, that's going to kind of tie into, I think, our conversation about birth, because isn't that kind of what birth is like, like we can't go in with our own story of what we think it should be like because we don't know how it's going to unfold, which I think can lead us right into me talking to you about your pregnancies. And I know you had your kids 12 years apart, so there's a lot to discuss about that because I know I have students that come back with a big gap between, and even just this morning, we have someone, her daughter's nine years um, older, will be, is nine years older than the upcoming baby. And she's saying it feels like two totally different pregnancies. So let's dive into that a little bit. So you had your first, you went through your first teacher training while pregnant and then 12 years later, another, how did your practice differ? This is going to be a multifaceted question. How did your practice differ? How did your approach to yoga differ? And then we can also start talking about just how your pregnancies felt different and how you were treated differently. Start wherever you want. Okay. So I actually wasn't teaching yet with my first daughter and I dropped out of teacher training. Oh, okay. I, I still remember I called the director of the teacher training, the leader, the teach lead teacher. And I told her I was pregnant and she called me back and left a message for me basically saying, well, you know, yoga teacher training is a big, big transformation on your body. And pregnancy is a big transformation on your body. And most people don't complete it if they get pregnant. And I just cried and cried. And I, just, I kind of took her at her word and I 
dropped out. And I realize now looking back that I didn't have to, Yeah, (laughs) but I was 23 years old and you know, I looked up to her and so I dropped out and to be completely honest, I don't remember too much about what my practice was like then Mm -hmm. in detail. It was definitely, you know, I was very flexible. I was young and flexible and I felt like I was good at yoga because of my mobility. Mm -hmm. And so there was definitely a little bit more of a performative aspect to my practice at that time. That's I've definitely evolved away from gratefully. (laughs) And, um, but you know, I was young and the young woman's body is just built for, for pregnancy. I had no problems. Um, I remember just a little bit of, of nausea, but it was just really easy. And my birth was really fast. I went into labor about two weeks early and it was on Thanksgiving day. So my whole family had uh, flown or driven, probably driven in to town and I hadn't seen many of them yet while pregnant. My sister, my dad and my stepmom, my mom at the time lived in town and the, I started having contractions, but I was in denial about it. I didn't realize I'd never done it before and it just didn't hurt. So I, you know, the stories that were given about labor is that it hurts. And so that's how, you know, So it didn't hurt. So I was convinced I wasn't in labor, but it started just getting more and more and more intense. And the contractions started getting really close together. And I called the midwife. And at that time, basically I was in transition already and they were like, okay, we're coming over. You're, you're definitely in labor. Were you planning a home birth? Yes. Okay. <laughs> just just checking to see how if it was an accidental home birth or not. Okay. No, I was planning a home birth. I was born at home, by the way. You and I have so years ago. many um, similarities. Home births. We both are theater people. Very flexible. I'm very excited. So keep going. I'm kind of fascinated. Okay. okay. So my family showed up right then, like right after I got off the phone with. <laughs> with the midwife and I being a little bit dramatic, I greeted them at the door and I pulled up my shirt to show them my belly. And I said, this is all your, take a good look at this because this is the only time you're going to get to see it. I'm having this baby tonight. And they were all like, whatever, you're, you're being dramatic. What, what are you talking about? You know, you're two weeks early. We're having Thanksgiving. And I was like, no, really the midwife's on her way over. And of course, like if you're coherent and you're able to talk to people. They don't really believe you're in labor either. And, um, so my daughter was born like an hour later. They were, you know, for the first, they, they were, you know, carrying tables out and food out to go move to my mom's house. My mom stayed with me. My partner at the time stayed with me and the second midwife showed up 15 minutes before my daughter was born. The first first midwife got there right around the same time as my parents. And yeah, I mean, it got it, by the way, it did get painful. 
<laughs> eventually I did not have one of those blissful births, but you know, the first, I would say maybe the whole thing was like four hours. So the first three hours of it, there was no pain at all. The second or the last hour was definitely like a train, you know, a freight train, mm-hmm. like there was no getting off. So that's, that was my first birth story. And I definitely, at least at the time, believed that my yoga practice was helpful. I still do, actually, because I have this memory of recognizing that I had to surrender, that this was, you know, that there was no controlling it. And so that was what I did. And I, I do believe that that is you know, I don't think that that's the only factor. I think there's a lot of things going on in a birth, but I, I think it's helpful to be able to surrender. And I think it's unhelpful to try to control it because that is just not possible. Yeah. It's like a wild river that's just going and we're just trying to ride that river. That's how I often visualize it. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. So let's talk about then after you had, when did you start teaching after you had your first child? About two years later. And how did, how did motherhood play into that? I find a teaching schedule with, with a child or two kids, um, challenging. How did that work out? And did you, do you feel like it changed anything with your approach? Well, I'm not sure if it changed anything with my approach or not. You weren't a mother before. That's right. But I did get a job teaching at the Y and they had childcare. Mm. And so that was how I was able to teach. That is helpful. Okay. So then let's talk about shifting forward to then 35, um, having another. And that's, that's 35 is kind of a, a big mark for a lot of people that they're put into a different category. And especially, you know, realize having a baby at 23 and like you said, uh, a young body, flexible body, you know, really no bumps. How were things different and were you treated differently at an older age? Well, I would say no, I was not treated differently because I was at the same midwife practice Mm -hmm. and they looked at my chart and they said, you know what, we really look at your fitness and your health and we don't care so much about your age. So that was really nice. I guess I was lucky about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I, I had two home births, but I remember still, I, I had my daughter at 40 and I ha- I did check in with an OB and I had a home birth midwife and they were not the midwife, but the, the OB who's still fantastic and supportive did have me do some genetic testing. And I just remember they pulled out this chart. They're like, well, this is where you were for the possibility of having problems three years ago when you had your first. And they flipped this chart and this is where you are now. And it just was scary. So I'm guessing you did not have any of that scary stuff. Nobody tried to scare me. I did have some genetic testing and my husband, who is different from the father of my older daughter, is a lot older than me. So we knew that, you know, that there was some concerns about his age more so than mine. Mm -hmm. But the big difference for me, and who knows if this has anything to do with age or if it's completely random, but I had 
terrible morning sickness. I had terrible nausea with my second that lasted five months. So I'm really grateful. I know that some people, it lasts the entire time. I'm grateful that wasn't the case for me, but it felt like forever that I was just basically laying in bed. I did teach a little bit and I would never get nauseous while I was teaching, but I would be terribly nauseous right before and right after. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I think it's focus. I had the same thing. I was fine during, I did sip some, uh, some lemon seltzer. That was my go-to, but I was often fine during, and then it was the before and after I literally just wanted to like lay down and die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I use little ginger lozenges. So listeners, these are some really good tips. <laughs> So well, here we're going to take a super quick break. When we come back, I just want to talk about your practice while pregnant with your second, because at that point you'd been teaching for a bit. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. All right. So we're back. So talk to me about what your practice and your teaching was like up until you got pregnant with your second and how you approached your practice. Well, before I got pregnant with my second, I had transitioned from a approach to yoga that was more contortion-y, fitness-y, you know, really physical and had as I mentioned earlier, a bit of a performative aspect to it, to it being more restorative and gentle. I kind of switched over and I started doing other forms of exercise for exercise so that I was able to look at my asana practice and not need it to be exercise. I actually started doing CrossFit and weightlifting and that was great. It was great for my body because of some of the mobility patterns that I had. I, I consciously focused on tightening up a bit. And so my yoga practice was more gentle, more meditation. And especially during pregnancy, I did a lot of meditation. That was really kind of the bulk of my practice. I did, I did restorative yoga. I did gentle yoga, but I would say what was key for me was the meditation and the mindset, the remembering to not identify with my thoughts, not identify with my thought patterns. Mm. How do you think that then played out for your birth? Do you think you were able to bring that meditative quality into your birth? No, (laughs) 
<laughs> I love your no. <laughs> Very honest, no. Okay. Uh, no. Well, so remember how my first birth was about four hours long? My yes. second birth was one hour. Holy crazy. And it your was body it just needs to open ride. up. Yeah, there was nothing peaceful about it. There was nothing meditative about it. It was like pure Wet survival. Miles. Okay. But I did survive. <laughs> to tell the story, yes. <laughs> that and... could be overwhelming. I've been a doula to people with really fast births. And while other people are like, oh, wouldn't it be great? What I witnessed, I did not have that quick. It was overwhelming for the birthing person to just have this start and fast and furious. Is that what you felt? Yeah, I definitely would have not minded a bit of lead up, a bit of a chance to kind of put my, you know, I had done all these hypno babies, techniques of learning natural pain mitigation through self hypnosis. No, there was none, none of that was even remotely like this is just like you're, um, you're on a ship in the middle of a storm in the ocean. You're not going to meditate there. You know, you're holding onto the, <laughs> the banister, whatever. Um, so with that one, it was interesting because my water broke actually the day before. And so I was on a time clock for being able to have a home birth. Yeah. I wanted to have another home birth and, my midwife, you know, they, they're certified nurse, nurse midwives here in North Carolina where direct entry midwifery is illegal. And, uh, we opted to go for a birth, um, help, you know, birth provider that was within the legal system so that they could stay with us if for whatever reason I needed to be transferred. And so they, you know, they have some guidelines they have to work with. And one of those was no more than 24 hours after water breaking, there has to be active labor. And so I had nothing until (laughs) about two hours before my clock was up, basically. And my husband actually the weekend before had, had been like, you know, it'd be nice if she'd be born on Friday because then I can spend the whole weekend with you guys and not have to miss work on Monday. (laughs) And so this is Friday at like seven o'clock. We went for a walk and it was storming and I got home and I sat on the toilet and I started talking to her and I was like, listen, I really don't want to go to the hospital. I really don't want to have Pitocin. Let's, let's do this. This is, this is the time. This is, this is it. Let's, let's make this happen. And I did that for about 20 minutes. And by the time I got off, you know, 20 minutes later, I was in transition and I was like completely like I had I had done that thing again, you know, while I was on the toilet where I was like, I'm going to surrender to this. I'm going to let it happen. And I know that like, it's just kind of miraculous that it worked because I know, you know, that that there's no guarantee. I'm not trying to tell my story with the thought that, you know, somehow I'm, I'm magical. I made it happen or whatever. This is just my story. Yeah. And, um, so she, my husband came up, he started filling up the birthing tub. He tried to give me ice cream. I rejected it. I said, I can't, I can't (laughs) eat. I'm having a baby. 
Um, and he told me to get in the tub and it was only like halfway to the line where it says, don't get in until it's up to here. You mm-hmm. know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. You're doing, you know exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I was like, I can't get in. It's not hot. He was like, get in. It's fine. I was like, okay. I got in. I had one contraction. And then the second contraction, like her head was out. Where, where were the midwives around? No. <laughs> okay. The answer is no. Um, actually she was in the driveway. So my husband caught her and then my older daughter and my stepson were both there. And so it was just the four of us and then the five of us. And then that was, you know, that was like two minutes. And then the midwife came up the stairs calling out, I hear a baby. (laughs) I guess you do. (laughs) Yep. And honestly, it took an hour for the afterbirth, which I think might be related to the fast labor. And that was harder almost than the birth itself. Like the birth, you get a baby at the end. The afterbirth, you just get this. You get a placenta. (laughs) It's not not quite as um, grandiose. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh, that I have to I I love birth stories. I didn't know we'd get so deep into them and I'm just smiling ear to ear because I I did a podcast um yesterday with a and one of our students that just had her baby four four weeks ago and they're just such different stories and when it's the kind of thing that just makes an impression on you no matter how far in the past it is. And the fact they can like hear you reliving it is it's beautiful. Thank you for being so open and sharing that because it's a big story. It makes a, it, you know, it is part of your, part of who you are. So thank you for being so open with that. Thanks for holding space for it. Oh, absolutely. This is, it's actually one of my favorite parts of, of working with pregnant people. It's to let them have their own birth unwind and then, and then let it be as it is. But that, so okay, after I'm still I'm still visualizing. I don't even know what your house looks like, but I have a whole visualization of your bathroom with uh with your family there and the midwife coming up. So baby's out, placenta happens, and then what's happening after that? You just chill, like starting to relax into this new experience. It's a kind of this beautiful melded family. Yeah. I mean it there was sending my husband to the grocery store for diapers because we weren't ready. <laughs> yeah. She was, she was also a bit early. And then, you know, both of my births, I didn't, I didn't really finish the, I didn't finish the first birth in a way because there was turkey and pumpkin pie afterwards. <laughs> That sounds good. That and there was my whole family gathered around, you know, and they hadn't finished eating yet. So they were just like, what? How is there a baby already? We haven't finished eating yet. So let me ask something about that. Okay. I know we're backtracking to baby one, but you, I'm so impressed that you felt comfortable enough in, I mean, I don't know how big the space was, but to have your family there while you were having your baby, that's that's pretty remarkable. Um, I didn't. No, they went back to my mom's house. Oh, well, okay. And then we called them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was a like a one bedroom, t- 
tiny apartment. Okay. <laughs> That's like, making a little more sense in yeah. my brain. Like from the birds I've witnessed, most of the time people kind of, they like to shut themselves into a, a quieter, like l- less traffic like space. I don't know if I'd be able to, and I was thinking as you were talking about that, I'm like, I don't know if I'd be able to open an often birth, especially unmedicated births. There's a lot of sound <laughs> that mm-hmm. goes on. I don't know if I could have done that thinking, you know, they're, they're passing the, the stuffing next door. <laughs> No, 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 no. They were, they were, you know, 10 minutes away at my mom's house. Yeah. And they came back. That's pretty amazing. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing your stories. I just love to hear that. So then let's fast forward a little bit into how did you start to incorporate yoga into your postpartum world? I want to just like, one thing I did poorly after my first as I went back too quickly. And some of those experiences with my body was like, maybe you should hold off. My brain's like, let's do it. And I found with my second, a little older, a little wiser, I was able to take baby steps back in. How did your practice start to evolve now with two kids? Well, I definitely listened to my body after the second one. And I'm not sure, honestly, after the first one, I think I recovered really quickly. I was the joy of being 23. (laughs) Yeah. I was 24 by the time she was born, but same difference, right? It was just this body that was just made for it, you know? And when I was 37, by the time my second one was born, it was weird. It was, you know, it's like, Oh God, what is going on here? You know, all this flesh, all this extra <laughs> flesh and these sensations that are just odd, you know, they're just so different from what you're used to, you know, especially if you live in a healthy body, you're used to certain types of sensations when you move mm-hmm. and other types of sensations that would be alarm bells but you don't usually feel them because normally you just, you know, you do the movement and your body responds to it in its normal way. But after birth, everything's changed and you have all these odd sensations that if you have a good relationship with your body, you recognize as like big flashing, no thank you signs. So, I mostly waited, you know, I mean, I did very gentle movement, but I'd say it probably took me about three months to get back to things that movement that was more exercise, like anything that would really engage my core in a, in a demanding way. That was very smart of you. Um, (laughs) I did not with my first, I just, something about the idea I wanted to move. I don't know what it was. It was summer. I just felt like I needed to get out and move. And I know I did it way too early. And then with my second, it being actually a very cold winter, I felt like I wanted to huddle inside and stay warm and nurture my body differently. Again, that also could be if one thing that I think the listeners, because I've talked about this all the time, when you start too early, the body can have more problems. You know, we can have pelvic floor issues if you start to put pressure on it too early. So I'm glad to hear that you were very smart by not doing that. I mean, I really, it wasn't a mental choice. It was more just a relationship with my body and listening to what my body was saying. And it was like, nope, 
nope, you're not ready. I did walk, you know, walking felt good. Walking felt safe, but nothing, nothing where there was a lot of load on the pelvic floor or the abdominal muscles. That's really smart. And I love that you keep talking about listening to your body. I've been focusing a lot on this in class for the last, say, like a year, I'm like, or, or five or 10. But um, the idea that we often tell people to listen to their body. And I think one of the best things a yoga practice can do is to teach people to listen to their body. Because some people can walk around, you know, you come from a theater background where it's a very, your instrument is your body. So there is that conversation. But it's so hard to say to people to listen to their body if they don't know what they're listening for. You know, if they're not used to sensation, everything can just be marked as bad. Do you know what I mean by that? I'm sure you probably... I do. Absolutely. And I think that one of the, one of the challenges for us as yoga teachers is helping our students be patient, that listening to your body doesn't mean that your body doesn't communicate in the same way as another human would communicate. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're not listening to your body for some sentence that is going to give you immediate insight. You have to first develop a relationship. So you have to just start with the listening without any expectations of answers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hard because I, in our culture, we're really conditioned that we want results fast. Mm-hmm. And so this type of perspective of saying, invest in this relationship, that's, that's a big challenge. But I do think that it's a little bit easier when you're talking to moms and parents, because there's this child that isn't going to respond to them right away. And Mm -hmm. they still need to pay attention and listen And they're not going to know what to do always immediately. The signs aren't going to be clear immediately. So it's, I think it's similar with the body where we have to learn the signs and we have to be patient and just pay attention and be willing to be in that space of like, I'm feeling something and I don't know what it means and that's okay. And it can be uncomfortable. It can be really uncomfortable to sit with that. I don't know what this is, or even to sit with discomfort and be like, I think we can explore what this discomfort is. Cause sometimes we feel discomfort. We immediately like, this must be bad, but it could be discomfort to Less, especially I do with my, my pregnant students, can be a discomfort to be like, okay, I'm uncomfortable, but what can I do with it? Is it a discomfort that's causing harm or is it just sensation I hadn't felt before? And then we can start to work on kind of raising our threshold of that. That makes sense? <laughs> Absolutely. And it parallels so perfectly with parenting an infant because sometimes (laughs) babies just need to cry, right? Sometimes there's nothing wrong and the baby's crying just to release some steam, just to express themselves. And so part of what we need to do as parents is recognize, okay, is the baby hungry? Is the baby in pain? Is the baby, you know, what, what kind of cry is this? Is this just a letting off steam cry? Can I just hold my baby as it cries and be okay with it crying? Like my nervous system is calm. I'm recognizing that all is well and, and my baby's crying. Whereas a lot of times first time parents will get very anxious when their baby cries, especially if they can't figure out a cause for it. Like it hasn't occurred to them that 
there may not be a reason other than just, you know, stress or tiredness or whatever. And that, that the crying itself is healthy. Yes. I remember in, when I was teaching back in person a while ago, when we would teach, when I would teach my postnatal classes and the parents would get very anxious. I would often, you know, ask, do you want me to hold your baby if it's crying? And the baby often cry, calmed down with me because it, I wasn't stressed about the baby crying, but as a new parent, you want to know what you can do to help that baby. And I think the babies can feel if, if the stress and anxiety coming off the parent. And so I had no stake in the matter. Like, I'm just going to hold this baby until hopefully it calms down and that way the student can get the class in. But yeah, when my body was calm, the baby responded to that. But that's so hard as a new parent. You don't know what, <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. You want, you you know, you want to try to help your child. Although my, my kids are six and nine and sometimes I still don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if you can speak Oh my to gosh. That. Well, yeah, my oldest one is about to turn 18 and I would not write any books about <laughs> a parent an 18 year old at this point. But I love what you're saying about how, you know, how the parent is affects the child because it's the same thing with our relationship with our bodies. When we notice discomfort in our bodies, it actually can teach us about what's going on in our own minds. Mm. So sometimes the discomfort we feel in our bodies can be a reflection of what's going on in our minds. And by paying attention to the body and investing in that relationship and starting to learn how does my, how do my thoughts and my feelings manifest in my body, then it gives us some insight because it, reflecting on our own minds is very difficult. Like metacognition, man, that's like one of the hardest things you can do. And in fact, one of the main techniques to learn how to do that is to pay attention to the body. And then use those signals to give you insight on what's going on mentally and emotionally. And that's why asana is so interesting because it's so specific. We can pay attention to what we're feeling within the poses, check in with our mind. Where are our eyes? Are they darting around? Is my mind really active? Oh, I love, we're bringing it back to the yoga mat. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I want to just ask a little bit, because you've been teaching for a while, how do you feel when you have pregnant students in class? Do you feel... Come about it? Do you feel secure? Is there, what could you offer also to teachers, newer teachers, especially when they have a pregnant student come on the mat? How do you offer, how do you invite them to handle that? I always feel excited for the student when I see them. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely don't feel nervous about it just because I've been pregnant twice. Yeah. And I recognize that the level of discomfort I felt was much higher than the level of risk. So I was going to be uncomfortable way before I was going to be in danger. Mm. And so when I I would talk to the student, you know, sometimes they would come and whisper to me in the beginning, like, I'm pregnant. I'm not showing you, but I want you to know that I'm pregnant, <laughs> you know, and, and I would say, great. So just do what, feels comfortable for you. And if anything doesn't feel comfortable, here's some different ways that you could modify. You could go into child's pose. You could lie on your back. You could do something else that you want to do and really put, put the onus back on them to figure out when to modify. Because in a non-prenatal class, I'm not going to be able to offer two different 
sequences at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, maybe if they're visibly pregnant, I definitely would give them a few. The main time that I give modifications for a pregnant person would be if we're doing anything prone on our bellies, I would have them do something similar on their hands and knees instead. Mm -hmm. Or if we're doing twisting, that was more of a closed twist. I would give them an open twist to do so that they're not compressing their bellies in a way that's uncomfortable. And that, to that degree, I can, you know, I can modify for them for an individual in a class, but not every single thing, because I don't want to second guess what they're capable of because everybody's so different. Mm -hmm. Some, some people, especially if they've already had a strong yoga practice before, can do almost anything almost the entire time and feels good about it. And other people are nervous about any amount of discomfort because they're afraid that discomfort means danger, Mm -hmm. which it doesn't necessarily. And others are just nervous about being pregnant because of the culture of fear that we have around pregnancy where nobody, you know, it's understandable because these little children fill our hearts up. And so we want to keep them safe. And we know that that's our prime directive as a parent is to keep them safer. And so you were talking about new parents, brand new parents, especially first time parents, that time of pregnancy can have a lot of anxiety around it. So my goal as a teacher, when I have a pregnant person in my class is to not feed into anxiety, not, not say anything to them that's going to make them think that there's danger that they need to be alert for, because I think they're getting that message way too much already. Mm -hmm. And instead really focus on comfort and focus on having an experience that is nurturing for them and enjoyable for them. That is great. Do you, as you were saying that, it kind of popped my mind that you, you really have, um, a comfort level and a strong belief in the power of the pregnant body. Do you think that can come from the fact that you were born at home, which means that your mother really trusted the process? Well, no, because. <laughs> okay, great. Um, my cord was wrapped around my neck three times. Oh, wow. Okay. It was amazing that I survived being born at home. Um, the doctor, okay. You want another birth story? I do. (laughs) I always do. (laughs) I was born in Kyoto, Japan in 1978 and my parents were hippies. Uh, they're both from Europe They were living in Japan, and so there's a language and culture barrier there. They went to the village doctor, and they said, we want to do a home birth. And she's like, okay, okay, no problem, no problem. And so, you know, they go to her. She goes, my my mother sees her for prenatal care. Okay, we're doing a home birth, right? Yep, no problem, no problem. Well, my mom goes into labor and sends for the doctor, and the doctor says, okay, come to my clinic. And my mom was like, no, 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 I'm doing a home birth, remember? She's like, no, 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 come to my clinic. So my mom's like, well, we're just going to do this on our own. And my dad starts boiling water. (laughs) 
And, you know, that doctor is probably sitting there like these stubborn foreigners. What the heck? And she shows up like minutes before I was born, checks for the cord, realizes it's wrapped around my neck and cuts it and saves my life. Oh, my goodness. Okay, that is not what. See, I had a preconceived idea that when you said <laughs> when you said home birth and you had them like, I I made an assumption. Clearly, I shouldn't do that, but that it was a really positive experience that you had heard. So let's go to what what sparked knowing that it was a very close call, but also it was an, almost an unassisted, so which is kind of a different, you know, a different situation. What sparked your trust in the process to feel confident to do a home birth? Because I think it's, I don't think it's for everybody. I think, I don't think it's a good or bad. I just, and I don't want to put like home birth on a pedestal and then those listen and be like, but I had hospital birth. It was great. Absolutely. I, I think it's, I think it takes a deep confidence in the body to, to do that. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? I do. You know, honestly, I think it was culture. Meaning my mom had a home birth. She had a second home birth with my sister, my younger sister, and there was no problem there. And, you know, we do lots of not super logical things because of culture, right? right? I think most women do hospital births, not because they have really examined the evidence behind both, but because like, no, my mom gave birth to me in a hospital. That's what we do. Right. So I think that was... The honestly, the biggest reason that I had home births is just that's what we do. That's what my family does. Do you think your daughters will? Gosh, I have no idea. Do you think it's they know they were born at home? I'm guessing. Oh yeah, (laughs) they love their birth stories. (laughs) Yeah, my kids. They they definitely like when we would drive. We moved since out of New York, but when we would drive by, my son would be like. was born in in that, in that apartment building. I'm like, yes, you were. Um, Because now my yoga studio is literally across the street from it. But yeah, I wonder, I always do wonder, like, is it something that we, we hear? Like I, I had a really positive birth story about my birth and it just led me to feel confident that my body could do it. And I remember teaching teacher training one time, one of my students was really, really nervous. She was pregnant, really nervous about her birth because she, her, brother was seven years younger and she remembers her mother's birth. She remembers her mother going from the front door of their house to the car. And the whole time my student told me, she kept saying, I think I'm going to die. I think I'm going to die. I think I'm going to die. So my student was terrified because she grew up feeling really nervous about birth, that it was a dangerous thing. I mean, her brother came out, it was fine. Um, but I think the stories we hear, and as you said, the culture around really can imprint what we, how we view birth and what we feel comfortable participating in. You know, it's so funny. I never thought about the fact that my birth was risky. Like that thought just didn't cross my mind because I was okay. And in my mind, I was like, as long as I have a qualified birth attendant, it'll be fine. Yeah. For some, yeah. And some they have But I have no idea why. I I don't know why. That's okay. We don't. (laughs) I do think that yoga played a role, though. Talk to me about that. Well, I did do a lot of prenatal yoga and... 
And that whole conversation we just had about being in a relationship with our own bodies. Now Mm -hmm. at that time for me, it was early days because, you know, now we're talking about 18 years later. So I've got a much different relationship and I would say deeper with my body, but I'd been exposed to those messages and that education about listening to your body. And that I think made an impact. And I think it, it did help me in those moments during my first birth where it was so intense and, and so out of control that it helped me to be able to relax even though physically maybe I didn't seem relaxed, but it was like this emotional letting go, this emotional relaxation. Mm -hmm. Um, And even a willingness to just meet the moment, whatever was going to happen, like a courage kind of happened. Mm. It definitely felt like a rite of passage. And it was like, you know, it's like, I didn't feel like I had a choice. Like I had to be courageous. I had to step in, step through this threshold and into this new role. Yes. Yes. That is that threshold of the matrescence, that moving from maiden to motherhood. And every person that births in any manner, they do, they meet that threshold. It's, it's challenging. Some can come, you know, come at it with courage. Some come at it with trepidation, but every person that does cross that threshold does meet some sort of emotion at it. You said that so perfectly. Thank you. Yeah, that's, oh, I love that. All right. We're going to take a super quick break and we come back. I'm going to offer you kind of a broad question (laughs) as we wrap up as a parent or teacher, because you you're giving such great information for both. If you can offer one tip or a piece of advice for new and expectant parents, actually, I'm just going to throw an and, and one tip for new yoga teachers. We'll be right back. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Okay, we are back. So first do something for new and expectant parents and then put your teacher hat on and then offer something for yoga teachers. I'm going to give three things because I want to give something different for expectant parents, especially especially the one about to give birth. Because to me, that willingness to surrender was so key. And if you can practice guided relaxation and guided meditation that trains your nervous system in release, in the sense of letting go and letting, you know, being in that river and letting the river flow around you, I think that whatever ends up happening with your birth, you benefit from that skill. So that's what I recommend for expectant parents. For new parents, the skill is similar but slightly different. 
It's about monitoring your nervous system and know you want to train yourself and you can use yoga. Yoga is excellent at helping you develop this skill. Use yoga to help you notice where you are, where your nervous system is. And it's more complex than this in reality, but it's helpful to think of it as sort of a continuum between activation and sedation. So your nervous system will be somewhere on that continuum. And when you're really activated and your child is really activated, you're going to feed each other, feed that activation, right? And that's not always what you want. So the more that you can just learn to notice where you are, this is the first skill. This is the key skill. Notice where you are on that continuum so that you can start to bring yourself where you need to be. Now, it's certainly possible that you could be overly sedated at times, right? You're super tired. You're, you're like kind of sleepwalking. Well, you definitely also want to build skill sets in, in activation, but through life, we tend to get activated more easily and not know how to slow down and calm down. And if you know any parent who is able to hold space for their kid to be activated and not allow that to infect their own activation sometimes that's an impossibility but we can improve this skill and so the more we can do that the more that we can teach our children the same skill set of monitoring our own nervous systems and taking some actions in response, slow breathing is a really good one. If you notice you're overly activated, conscious, slow breaths as if you're smelling the sweetest flower, it really, it's incredibly effective at activating the parasympathetic nervous system and slowing everything down and actually sending messages to your brain that all is well, you're not actually in danger And this will influence your child and their level of activation. And I think, I believe, and I hope that it also teaches by example how to do this because it's a life skill that we could, we could all use for sure. That is, I, I needed that reminder. You know, sometimes we know things intellectually and kind of stored back in our brain. Like, yes, of course I know to do this, but then sometimes you just need someone to remind you to, to take a deep breath. I know at this time right now where many of us are living kind of one on top of each other all the time, taking that pause, taking that breath when your child might be, I like you're overactivated. I'm, I'm going to use the word edgy and irritating. Um, <laughs> help me not be edgy and irritated. So thank you. Cause I know I'm going to be using that very soon <laughs> later today. So thank you for that very clear, really good reminder of that. Cause you're right. Lead by example, calm our own nervous systems. And so what's your third thing for yoga teachers? For new yoga teachers, I think the big piece of advice is trust the process and let yourself be a new yoga teacher. I remember for myself, and I've seen it over and over, that there's this level of anxiety and this level of comparing ourselves to people who've been teaching for a very long time. Like we look at our own teachers and we want to immediately be where they are. And you and I are talking about right now a journey that 
I imagine for you has been similar, but for me, we're talking about like 18 years, an 18 year journey. And there's no, there's no rushing this journey. There's no rushing this relationship with your body. There's no rushing the sensitivity that you will build through your practice. So that is the first thing is let yourself be new and be okay with that because by being honest about where you're at and okay where you're at, you're actually going to be a more effective teacher. Mm-hmm. You're going to be more present with your students and they're going to respond to you more. And there are lots of students who kind of prefer a newer teacher. There's a little bit of a sense of a, sim- a more shared perspective, right? Sometimes teachers that are very experienced, the curse of the expert, we use this jargon that we expect other people to understand. And sometimes there's a, like, there's a gap that happens. So we need new teachers. New teachers are valuable in the world. And there are some students that are really going to resonate with you right as you are now as a teacher. Oh, that's such good advice. That is such good advice. Thank you. I love, I love talking about yoga and these kind of things. It's so enriching to me. Thank you. Where can people find your work? And you've got a lot of work. You've got Facebook. You've got a ton of stuff. You've got your own podcast. Let it out. Where can people find you? I host the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. And I do have some yoga practitioners who like listening to it as well. Although, probably not every episode. I have a Facebook group for yoga teachers. It's also called the yoga teacher resource Facebook group. So that's pretty easy. And I also post over on Instagram, yoga teacher resource. (laughs) So wherever you're at podcast player, Facebook, you can find my website, um, Instagram, just type in yoga teacher resource and you can find me. And most of my content is really directed to yoga teachers, but there's definitely quite a few podcast episodes that practitioners that are really excited about going pretty deep into yoga would love. Well, I think the community, so the community that listens to this podcast, we had a lot of pregnant folks, a lot of postpartum, but we have a lot of yoga teachers that listen um, because I've been doing yoga teacher training. Honestly, I don't even know how many years, I think like 15 years. So we got a lot of yoga teachers that are going to be really excited to dive into all that you offer. And thank you for all that you offer. You really, you really hold space for yoga practitioners and teachers. And thank you for this podcast, which I can tell by the way that you interviewed me, you're an amazing interviewer and you hold incredibly brave space for women and anyone who gives birth to reflect on their story and to share their experience. It's really beautiful. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate your time. Enjoy your afternoon. Thank you. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media 
source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 